Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Episode 7, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. That was that was a pretty good radio voice. It was. I would go into voiceover, maybe. Seriously. Yeah, for I, really manly products. Weren't you like? Weren't you doing your book audible? Uh, I was. I I got stopped in the oh. middle of reading my book. Do you know that actually reading your book for audible um, is way harder than it sounds like to do. You thought you could do the whole thing in like one session. Yeah. Well, with the Jesus Centered Bible, one of the features is the blue letters in the Old Testament where we highlight every place that points to Jesus and then write a little caption box with it. People love that feature. So we it had never been done before, so with my partner Ken Castor and I, I just envisioned maybe a long weekend with Ken we could get this done, and we made it through the Pentateuch after four days. <laughs> so I'm, I guess I'm just that way, that I think I can get much further than I can, but... I have noticed this about you. Yeah. <laughs> I've stopped, uh, I, I think we're about a third of the way through creating the audio version of The Jesus-Centered Life, because it's a lot harder to read your own words without making a mistake than it sounds like. Mm. So, yeah. But um, I do use my radio voice when I'm making that recording. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's good. So our topic for today's episode is about the tension between happiness and joy, and why does that, why does it even matter that we answer this question what is happiness? What is joy? What difference does it make? We hear a lot of churchy stuff around happiness and joy, these nuanced descriptions of the two and why. We, do do, we have to do a lot of explaining in the church as to why we're not continuously happy. I mean, if we're rescued by Jesus and we have eternal life with him and he's given us abundant life, then why aren't we what, dang it, why aren't we happy all the time? And so we have to concoct these sometimes elaborate explanations as to why we're not continuously happy. And is it even possible that a person who loves Jesus could be a melancholy person, a person who's not typically happy? Is that okay? Is there something wrong in the chemistry here? Or did did God not bless you enough to make you happy? Oh, yeah. Maybe you're not obedient, you're hiding something. There's always that route, which is the formulaic route of doing just enough to get this distant God who's holding back to give you what 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 he's given other people, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even messages about um, this idea that there's other people out there that are continuously happy, and they found the formula for happiness. We just need to find the right formula out there. That's what I don't have yet. But the idea that there's other people out there that have experienced this and, and we don't, um, it's a ridiculous myth for one thing, but it also puts everyday, authentic, normal, real life off the radar. Like, uh, my, my real life isn't like the real life of other people, is what we think individually. We don't discover that's not true until we actually start being honest with each other. So if you're a new listener, I'm Rick, um, author of The Jesus-Centered Life and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Becky. Hello! And before we get into what we wanted to explain to all of our avid listeners, why 
we took a week off. I know. We're really sorry. Yeah, I, I actually missed doing this because I missed Becky. Um, but I was at the Simply Youth Ministry Conference. Uh, I lead that conference. It's for uh, it's a national conference for youth pastors, and it is a breakneck experience. It's like six days of being on a bullet train. Um, and uh, But I, I wanted to share one quick memory from that experience. The whole experience, our intention is to um, create a world-class training uh, event for youth pastors with the subversive intent of ruining them for Jesus underneath everything. And there were so many moments of this happening. But I, there, there was a couple that uh, contacted me ahead of time that asked if they could have coffee with me, and they knew that I would be on a bullet train the whole time, so they knew it was unlikely I'd be able to do it. But I did have 20 minutes one day, and so we got together in a little coffee shop, and we were talking, and the reason they wanted to get together with me is that they had taken this message, this Jesus-centered message, and embedded it in every aspect of their ministry, and they wanted to talk to me about how the fruit that they had seen since they'd made, made this switch. And the thing that really struck me is I, um, the guy said, I have a discipleship group of young men, and we had always done this the typical way, sort of a topic-based, will-based, discipline-based discipleship group. When we turned that around and made the whole point of the discipleship group to simply get to know the heart of Jesus, everything changed. And I said, well, what changed? And he said, well, he thought for a moment, he said, well, in the past, the outcome of that discipleship group was sometimes greater knowledge. Now the outcome of that group is worship. And it just floored me. I thought, that's it. This is a way of life that leads to outcomes that have everything to do with worship. Less about, I mean, you will become more disciplined, but, but it's out of love, not out of should, in this way of life. Um, you, you will become more knowledgeable, but you'll become more knowledgeable of the heart of Jesus. Um, and out of that comes a lifestyle of worship that just bubbles up in you. That's what he was describing in these guys. It just worship bubbled up in their lives. Now you have these high school guys walking around worshiping Jesus during the day because of their shift of focus. So anyway, that's the, that is the super highway I'm coming out of right now, just this rich experience of being around people who have uh, fully embraced the Jesus-centered life, and they have tried to embed this in their ministry, and hearing their stories of fruit and um, profound transformation that they're experiencing. So I do feel like we need to mention, um, because we talk a lot about Lifetree and JesusCenteredLife.com, but um, part of the organization, the whole organization that Rick and I work for, is we also have another side of us that's called Group, and we provide resources for churches. So we don't, we don't know a ton about you, but you might be in ministry, or maybe you just lead a small group at your house. But if you're interested in more of this um, Jesus-centered youth ministry stuff, you don't have to be a church. You can find out more about it at... Yeah, just go to group.com. Yeah, go to group.com. And there's a youth ministry area at group.com. That, that's where you can find it all. Yep. Well, today we're going to talk about this tension between joy and happiness. And Becky, you brought some quotes from the world of Pinterest, yep, Pinterest. with you today and about happiness. And uh, I, I, I'm assuming everybody knows what a meme is, but it's kind of a strange word, but... It's they like are. A, it's like a photo that also has words on it. Yeah, we have tons of them at JesusCenteredLife.com. There's some people who I think read more memes than they read the Bible. So these are from the world of Pinterest. So of course they are experts. This is expert advice here. And these are about happiness. I actually went in and I typed in happiness quotes. 
that's how I found these. Um, and there was hundreds and hundreds. So life only comes around once. So do whatever makes you happy and be with whoever makes you happy. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. What, what, a, what an ironclad promise that is. Yeah. Happy, happy. Uh, the best part of, about life, every morning you have a new opportunity to become a happier version of yourself. Hmm. A happier version of yourself. Every morning. The happier version of me, I wonder what that would be like. Is a happier version of me more like Jim Gaffigan? I, I picture lots of sunlight, you know, just sunlight. like kind of radiating from you. Yeah. And the other thing this says is that if you didn't achieve it, you can try again tomorrow. Oh, yeah. To be a happier person tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Just try again tomorrow. Yeah. Um, if it makes you happy, no one else's opinion should matter. Wow. What if we made that the universal rule of the world? We'd all be dead within a week. Seriously. I was like, this is like permission to do whatever you want, people. Listen to this. Permission to do whatever you want. Make sure that your kids don't ever find this quote. Seriously. Um, those who move forward with a happy spirit will find that things will always work out. Wow. So this is like the mythology of our culture, and it's the mythology that... that happiness is resting on a mountaintop somewhere, and some people have figured out how to climb that mountain and live that happy. It's What's interesting is um, all you have to do is scratch the surface of real life in your neighborhood or wherever else. I mean, in our neighborhood in the last month, we've heard about a man who's deeply involved in the HOA and deeply involved in all activities that go on in our neighborhood, who's actually been an alcoholic for so long that he's dying of liver disease now. Mm. And his kids stand at the bus stop with my kids. And I look at those kids and I think, I can't imagine what's going on in your house right now because your dad is dying from alcoholism. And nobody really knew. Because mm -hmm. in a lot of neighborhoods, um, everyday alcoholism is completely acceptable, especially if you have enough social events to make it uh, seem not so unnatural that you're drinking all the time. So... That happened. We hear stories all the time of you know, happy, smiling faces, and, and what's happening inside their house is not happy, smiling faces. Or just driving around, you know, in Fort Collins. We've talked about this. The homeless population and the panhandling population has grown, and I, it, it just breaks my heart. Every time I drive anywhere, there's somebody who's in a desperate situation that needs help. Yeah. Eh. And, you know, it, it, when, I can't you, be happy. when you think about how tenuous happiness really is, if we're really honest with ourselves, we do experience uh, tastes and moments and seasons of happiness. There's no doubt about it. They're, they're very intoxicating to think that we could stay there, too. Um, but it, happiness is like one of those things that once you try to grasp it, you can't hold on to it. it, it it's, its very nature of staying there means that you're not grasping it. It's very tenuous, and and in the end, not the not uh, a, um, a a pursuit that is going to end well for us. They, even though it's embedded in our American consciousness that we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, so we feel like it's an inalienable right that happiness is. But I want to suggest that happiness, um, while uh, all of us welcome it when it comes, um, is not really the the uh, lifeblood of the kingdom of God. Um, that's called joy. Um, and joy is a deeper experience of wholeness than happiness can ever hope to achieve. So 
Um, I, w- one thing I wanted to ask before we dive deeper into this, Becky, is this whole tension between happiness and joy, how have you processed this delineation within the church, the church's message about these two things? How have you processed or heard this message, and what have you done with it? How have you tried to work through the difference between these two things yourself? So in my family, the message of happiness was a pretty predominant one. Hmm. And it, it, it was like, if you aren't happy, then you're negative, or um, my happiness matters, and so I have to do this to make me happy. So growing up, there was a lot of pressure to just always be happy no matter what. Um, Which then leads to being a poser. Yeah. Because if you feel pressured to be happy all the time and you can't be, yeah. then you then the only viable alternative is to be a poser. Yeah, and, and, and definitely because I'm... I, I'm a realistic person. I look very realistically at things. I was often called negative and, you know, some of those things. Um, but one of one time, I, when, it was at Christmas time, and I was, I was dealing with this because, you know, at Christmas time you have to deal with your family. That's what happens. <laughs> so um, some people get really excited about that. That's not always exciting in my life. Um, but we were, I, I love, one of the things I love to do at Christmas time is I love to serve other people. It's one of my most favorite things. It fills me with joy in my spirit to be able to, so I'm, I'm always looking for projects of like, okay, what am I going to do this Christmas? I'm going to, you know, make, I'm going to make this stuff and I'm going to take it to the homeless shelter. I'm going to go serve somewhere. And I, and I really enjoy that. And, um, and I was getting a lot of pressure from my family because they didn't want to do anything like that the things that brought me joy, they wanted to do the things that, that brought them happiness. And I remember I was sitting in church and the pastor said, you know, joy is what you do for others and happiness is what you do for yourself. Mm. And I thought, that's the tension I'm living in. Mm. That's the tension I'm living in is I, I, I want to do this because it brings me so much joy and, and joy is so much more valuable to me than happiness. Mm. It's a totally different experience and I think because it's it's born from the spirit, it's like God doing something with me, and we're doing something that He wants to do through me, and it, it brings me so much joy, you know. Yeah, you know, it, it's it made me think as you were talking that uh, all of these advertisements for exotic vacations that you see all the time, they're all about the place, the places you can go, the things you can see. Well, I've been all over the r- world, and my wife and I would say. Um, because we've seen a lot of places now, that they don't give me anything like joy to go and experience a place, um, unless it's in the context of an intimate relationship. Now, that is fun, but it's really the fun of the relationship in a new place that brings joy. The place itself doesn't, but that's what we're promised, is if you just get to this place, it will bring you happiness, and that's false. Mm -hmm. It's really who you're with, the community you're a part of, or with your spouse or with your friends, um, that create the richness of the place. So it's a false message, and it's a myth that we've bought into that there are happiness in things. But there is no happiness in things. Um, America is the most affluent culture in the history of the world. Let that sink in for a second. In the whole history of the world, there's never been a more affluent country than the United States is today, and we're also the most depressed country in the, in the Western world. Um, we have the highest rate of depression and anxiety and stress. So that all those things that we have, all those big screen TVs and 
devices and all the kind of stuff that we filled our life up with, we say, you know, stuff doesn't make us happy, but we don't live that way. Um, we still believe that just over the next hill is, is the happiness trove, wherever it might be. So let me throw something out to you that's an unusual way of thinking about the difference between happiness and joy. I say that happiness is all about learning to live in the kingdom of man, the kingdom of broken people who live here on this earth. Happiness is all about shrewdly trying to find uh, as much happiness as you can in the kingdom of man. But joy is all about learning to live in the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is said a lot in the Church, and we, it's one of those things that we hear and we think we know what it is, but if you asked somebody, what is the kingdom of God? Uh... <laughs> I think it's like a bunch of thrones and <laughs> there's... You mean like a bathroom at the airport? There's oh, like, not that kind of throne. Not those kinds of thrones. <laughs> no, you know, like you read in Revelations, there's like the the beings with eyes all over them, oh, and yeah. there's like everybody singing... Holy, holy, holy. So your, your basic freak-out place. Like yeah. a place you wouldn't want to go to on a Saturday night for a party. It's really white there. <laughs> lots of white. <laughs> I think if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that Becky thinks in colors. <laughs> it's really white there, uh, said Becky. So uh, that's not what the kingdom of God is. Uh, Jesus contrasted the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God all the time in his favorite way of teaching, which is in parables. About half of the parables that Jesus told were all about the kingdom of God. And what was he doing? He was, he was trying to—listen to this—he was trying to help us understand a foreign culture, like as if you had a Japanese exchange student come live in your house for six months, and you were trying to understand her culture, and she was trying to help you understand it by observing what was in your culture and saying, well, in my culture, it's kind of like what you do here at dinner, only this is how it's different in my culture. So she has to find ways to attach meaning in your culture so that you can understand her culture. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's picking out stuff in the kingdom of man that, that can help us understand what life is like in the kingdom of God. That's why he tells parables. So the kingdom of God is really Jesus' home country, it's his native country, and when we commit ourselves to him, here's the remarkable thing, we become part of his family, and our native home country becomes the kingdom of God in that moment. But the bizarre thing is we're still living in the kingdom of man, and that's what we know best. So Jesus told these parables so that we could understand our native country. It is native to us. Our hearts now are made to enjoy the kingdom of God, but we don't know hardly anything about it. And all of its commonalities and practices and truths and ways of doing things seem strange to us. That's why so often when Jesus told the parable, people are like, what? Whoa, that's not how we do it here. Even Jesus would say over and over again, you've heard it said, blank, he was trying to say, you've heard it said in the kingdom of man, this, like, um, hate your enemies and take revenge on them, but in the but I say in the kingdom of God, our native home country, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he's trying to say there's a difference in the way we do things in the kingdom of God. So Jesus himself is the embodiment of that culture of the kingdom of God. If you get to know Jesus and watch what he says and does and why he does those things, you will understand what is normal and natural in the kingdom of God. So 
we can certainly find a kind of fleeting or temporary happiness in the kingdom of man, but it's a clear overinvestment of our heart that will come back to bite us in a myriad of ways. This is what really, uh, to bring up another parable, the parable of the rich man in Lazarus is all about this. You have one man who's totally investing in his happiness in the kingdom of man, and he finds out at the end of his life, oops, that was not a good investment because I got nothing now, and now everything's clear to me. I'm empty, I'm poor. I, I spent my life getting rich, and at the end of my life, I'm incredibly poor, and I'm looking at Lazarus, this guy who is poor in the kingdom of man, and he is experiencing richness in the kingdom of God. He's the richest man there. How can I get there? And Jesus is saying, sorry, you can't. It's one of those parables that we don't like to teach on very often because it has a hard edge to it, but what Jesus is trying to point out is that it's a folly to pursue the, the kind of happiness that the kingdom of man promises will do it for you, and, and he's trying to entice us, invite us into living more in the kingdom of God. Investing in happiness is like really investing our paycheck in the slot machines at the casino. Yeah, sometimes we'll hit the jackpot, but it's just a matter of time before you lose big time on that bet. Uh, that's why in casinos it says the house always wins. Well, that's true in a broken world, too. If you're looking for the jackpot of happiness, well, the house always wins in a broken world. So by investing ourselves in learning and living in the kingdom of God, that's like giving our money to Warren Buffett. It's pretty much in good hands when you give your money to Warren Buffett. Still a risk. It's not a completely fantastic illustration there, but I'm trying to make a point that Warren Buffett versus a slot machine or Warren Buffett versus the lottery, it's a much better investment of your life and heart. So put another way, Jesus tells parables about the kingdom of God as a kind of a prod for us to begin to learn living in joy, which is the currency of heaven. So let's take a look at some of these parables of the kingdom of God and contrast them with sort of the conventional wisdom of the kingdom of man. Now when I say th these are two, we're, we're going to really highlight the strategies and practices and truths of two different cultures and contrast them. So um, it's, it's important to take a close look at them. So let's start with the, like the parable of the talents. So this is a perfect illustration of the two different cultures. So Jesus tells this parable where um, he gives, uh, the master gives three of his underlings a differing level of investment uh, currency, and then goes away and comes back to see what they've done with it. And uh, the first two have risked with their investment, and he tells, and they tell the master, here's what we got in return. The last one was afraid of his master, and so he didn't want to lose the money, he didn't want to risk it and lose it, so he buries it. And in the story, the master's really super upset with the last one. Why? Because A, he was afraid of the master's heart, and therefore he took no risk. So in the kingdom of God, what are we learning here? In the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, Understanding my heart is paramount. You, need, you must understand my heart and how I respond to risk and failure. What do I think about it? Um, it? We don't have two examples of guys who took the talents, invested them, and lost it all. No. Nope. We, don't, we don't have... He didn't choose to put that as part of the story. So what is he trying to focus on here? He's trying to focus on 
the one guy who didn't have much to risk, he had the least amount to risk, but he wouldn't risk it. So um, this fascinated me so much, I wrote a whole book called Skin in the Game, which is about how Jesus surfaced risk in every encounter he had with people. If somebody wanted something, Jesus would make sure that, that a risk they took was part of the equation to move toward that. It was a way that he engaged their heart. And we can call it having faith or trusting or belief. All we know is that in the kingdom of God, when somebody invests their trust and faith and belief and takes a risk, Jesus loves it. It's part of the currency of the kingdom of God. It's so cool. It's like, I mean, I think a lot of people, I've heard this this. Um, in sermons before. And I think what, what we tend to focus on in this is, okay, what are your talents and how are you giving them to God? Right. We turn it into a should, mm-hmm. we kind of turn it into a should, but I love this, um, perception of God really is asking for risk. That's, it's not about shoulding and okay, y- y- here's your talents and how are you investing them wisely in the kingdom? This is about, this tension of, I, I have to risk a little bit. So let's use a story that you've told before on the podcast of um, going into the grocery store and being awake and alert to the nudge of the Spirit as you go, and if there's somebody with a need, mm-hmm. you might stop and go back in and buy groceries, or you might stop and give them uh, give them something that they need. So in the kingdom of man, you hang on to your money, you don't go back into the store and buy groceries for somebody. In fact, you don't even know that person's story. What what are they going to do with those groceries? Mm-hmm. Or what are they going to do with that money that you give them? So in the kingdom of man, you hang on to your resources, because your resources are what guarantees your happiness in the future. But in the kingdom of God, you give those resources away, and you experience joy when you do. You might actually be sacrificing happiness. You may not be able to buy some new clothes, or some new music, or um, wh- whatever it is. You may not be able to buy those things because you just gave some of that money away, and there's no guarantee, you know, like, that God's just going to give you five times that amount, whatever you just gave to that person, but what you do get is this experience of joy, and that's what I heard yeah. when you told the story. Yep. So even in your story, what, what, what happened in you as you gave? I just did what I knew I had to do. So there wasn't there's th- there wasn't any like guilt or shame that I felt. It but was the just, outcome of it is what what was going on inside of you as you walked away from having done that. It was a joyful experience with Jesus to just be able to be with him. And I'm saying that that risk you took is the portal, the doorway into that kind of joy. It's not the fact that you served somebody is super important and responded to the need in the moment is super important. But the joy that we get as a result of that is the gift of Jesus to us as we risk on his behalf. So the transaction isn't about the person, you know, because in, in a lot of times in Christianity, the, the question you would get about that story is, well, did you tell them about Jesus and grace? And did they, you know, did you pray with them and they did they become a Christian? And, you know, what's the transaction here? What mm. What's the currency? But you're saying the currency isn't a, even about that person. The there, currency... there, is n- there is no transaction in the end. It's all um, lavish generosity on Jesus' part. In, in, when people take risk, when he, when he uh, invites them into risk 
on behalf of whatever it is they want in every encounter, when they risk, watch how Jesus responds. He is delighted, mm-hmm. sometimes astonished, some, but and in every case, he's celebrating the risk that happens more than he is the outcome of the healing. Mm-hmm. He celebrates that. I, I'm thinking about uh, a couple we met at the Simply Jesus gathering this summer, Jeremy Cortland and his wife. Jeremy started um, this, this movement called Preemptive Love, and he's written a book called that as well, but he and his wife and his two kids live in, ISIS, in an ISIS-controlled territory of Iraq, and they minister there met through medical mission and also through uh, other means now, through food and other uh, necessity support right now. But uh, talking to this guy, I was in a small gathering where we could do Q&A with him. He has his whole family in ISIS-controlled Iraq. It just sounds unbelievable that you would do this. And yet he's... And somebody asked him, um, why do you put your family at risk like this? And he said, well, it's not that I'm naive about what could happen to us. I'm very aware of what could happen to us. But what you heard in his response was something deeper than happiness. They, didn't, they don't have the comforts of Western society there. They, they have not always good access to good water, good food, their, their kids, what's going to happen to them. But shot through their story is the joy that they experienced as people risking on behalf of Jesus. That joy was their food in the end. That's what he was trying to say. It's hard when you ask somebody who's in a tough situation, what's making you happy there? I don't get it. And he's not trying to spin it so that you hear a story of happiness. He's trying to tell a story of joy Mm -hmm. about being there, that they're doing what they were created to do and risking to do it. So let's let's move on to another parable. Um, uh, There was a series of these kinds of parables where small things become big things, in the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus is saying, um, "In the, the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but when it's planted, it grows up into this enormous tree that has so many branches that birds can nest in it. So we've always we've heard of mustard seed faith and things like that, but what Jesus is really trying to point out here and in many other places is that small things can become huge things, if what? If they're given wholeheartedly. So I was in this, we have this uh, small group that meets in our house every week of 12 teenagers, and we were um, walking through this, what we're doing right now, we were taking the Beatitudes that uh, in Matthew chapter 5, and where Jesus says, blessed are these things. He's really saying, in the kingdom of God, these are good things. These are the really good things. Yeah, and so we're asking them, these, these kids, to contrast the Beatitudes with the culture of their school, um, how do these things, what's the tension between them? And uh, one of them we asked, uh, I remember, uh, blessed are those who are mor- who mourn, and we asked them, well, how does that contrast in your school? And one of the kids spoke up and said, well, in our school, fake it till you make it is the standard, not blessed are those who mourn, who are real about their pain. No, no, fake it until you make it, because you're never going to reveal that vulnerability. So what we talked about is, yeah, that's your school culture. What would that look like if you brought the kingdom of God into your school culture, where you were real about your pain? What would happen then? But the same is true um, when we got to this, small things become huge things. Um, They said, in our school, performance is everything. Your grade, your time in sports, 
um, your popularity factor, the clothing you wear, everything is judged by outcome and performance. But in the kingdom of God, if a small thing given with a whole heart is how things operate, is what's, what is honored in the kingdom of God, like the widow's might, when mm-hmm. she drops a tiny penny into the pot, nobody's going to notice that woman except for one person, Jesus. Why? Because what she's doing is what he values more than anything else. She gave nothing, but she gave all. And when somebody risks to give all, Jesus celebrates. So with these kids, they said, well, bringing the kingdom of God into our environment would mean then looking for people who are giving with their whole heart, no matter what the outcome or performance is. And if we started to honor and celebrate those people, that would start to change the culture of our school. Or imagine if you did that in your, in your workplace. You know, we work for a beautiful Christian company, but I have not always worked in this world. And everybody is, is clobbering themselves to the top. They're, they're climbing the ladder. They're trying to climb over people on the ladder. And what if at your work you decided to recognize people who maybe were not doing really well on the ladder, but they were working really hard and they were giving their all to it, even though they weren't doing that great. What if you went after those people and you just started calling them out in meetings? And you honored them. Yeah. You found ways to honor what you saw in them. Yeah. I see you really trying hard on that. I appreciate it, you know? And uh, the it, it it can slip into this kind of sense that in our culture, anyone who tries hard gets a trophy. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who invest their whole heart in something, no matter what the outcome is. Because Jesus honors risk, and he honors wholeheartedness, those two things in the kingdom of God. Another one we could talk about for a second here is uh, the way that uh, Jesus um, honors the worth of the individual in the kingdom of God, as opposed to the crowd. So he tells this story, uh, this, this short parable of the lost sheep, and wouldn't a person who had a hundred sheep and 99 of them were safe on the hill, but one was had wandered away lost, wouldn't that shepherd go after the lost one? And I, I have told this story now multiple times at the conference that I just came out of. I call it my campfire story. It came from the Simply Jesus gathering this, this, this summer, where uh, after the first night, Carl Medeiros, who leads that gathering, said, hey, you can go out by the campfire uh, tonight. Now, this is in the middle of the wilderness in the Colorado Rockies. It's beautiful crisp air, uh, stars all over the sky, and you're going to sit at a big campfire. And he, had, he said, Carl said, and I've invited Brad Corrigan to come play guitar at the campfire. Well, most people didn't know who Brad Corrigan was, but I'm friends with Brad, and I didn't even know he was at the gathering, and Brad is actually one-third of this band called Dispatch, which happens to be the most popular independent band in history. A lot of people haven't heard of them because they're an independent band, but when they kind of broke up five or six years ago, they did a final concert, an outdoor concert in Boston, and it was the largest outdoor concert in Boston's history. They had 110,000 people show up for it. There are avid fans of this band, Dispatch. They're like a jam band that are just popular all over the world. Well, here's Brad, one of the three members of Dispatch, who's going to go out and be the campfire guitar guy. And when we got out there, most of the people, the 50 or so people around the campfire, had no idea who this guy was. He was just campfire guitar guy. And so Brad is singing and playing his heart out while people are just talking to each other and not paying attention to him. They were doing what they wanted to do around the campfire. They didn't realize what I thought when I was sitting six feet away from Brad. 
wow, there's thousands of people around the world who would pay a lot of money to sit six feet away from Brad Corrigan at a campfire. That, that, that would be a star celebrity moment for them. And here I am, they're just sitting here listening to him. So I, I, after 45 minutes, I needed to leave. So I walked away from the campfire, got into the dark a little bit, and Jesus stopped me. And he said, that right there is my heart. And if you want my heart, you will adopt the attitude that Brad has right now. And I said, what are you talking about? And he reminded me of the parable of the lost sheep. And he said, my heart is for the ones, not the crowds. If you want the crowd's approval and the crowd's response, then you're going to miss my heart, because I care about the ones, the individuals. So, and it was a real question. He wasn't shooting me. He was asking me, do you want my heart? And I said, yes, I do. And give me a heart for the ones, and let that be enough. So let's relate this to happiness. Um, A lot of people feel like if they can just get to a certain point in their career or their life where they have the amount of clout that they want to have, you know, the amount of success that they want to have, that they'll be happy, right? And so they're working really hard towards this. I will be happy when I get to there. Um, And, you know, that it also includes I'm going to have all this stuff because of it and all this money because of it. But really, it's all about when I get there and I have that position, I'm going to be happy. And what this is saying is, what if you, what if God decides to just waste you? What if, you you know, in the Old Testament, you were supposed to give your best calf for sacrifice. What if he just decides that you're going to work really hard and you're never going to get to have that kind of attention here on earth? Hmm. You know, and maybe whatever it is you're going to do, it's not going to be as as audaciously um, successful as you thought. What if, what if that happens? Um, and that is so counter culture. Yeah, and this is where, but this, to your point, is where joy is. If yeah. you can shift yourself to say, what matters is the ones, and I'm going to live wholeheartedly giving, serving, and loving the ones in my life, and not concern myself with the, the metaphoric crowd what what level of popularity do I have? How much am I well-known? or Whatever su- level of success you want to cut it. But what if I give myself wholeheartedly to serving and giving and loving to the ones? Then you have the heart of Jesus, and when you have the heart of Jesus, you experience a deep kind of joy if you'll shift your, your focus. The last one that maybe to touch on here is uh, understanding the value of the treasure is the most important thing in the kingdom of God. So Jesus told a couple of quick parables, the treasure in the field, and the pearl of great price. In both cases, uh, the point of these parables is that somebody discovers a fantastic treasure that others haven't noticed yet, and so they give up a lot to get that, but it's because the treasure is worth so much more than they've given up that it's natural for them to do this. The risk here isn't even much of a risk once you understand the nature of the treasure and how great the treasure is. So Jesus is trying to say to us, in the kingdom of God, if you understand the treasure of the beauty that's being offered to you, then the risk and the things that you give up seem overshadowed by that once you understand the treasure. So this is really essentially why our pathway to the pursuit of the heart of Jesus is so important, because if you pursue the heart of Jesus and begin to understand the vastness of the treasure that is there, then the risk of your life seems less and less because you're trading that to get the the heart of Jesus. 
So this is where joy comes. These two little parables are full of joy because the person gave up everything they owned to get that treasure, and the result of it was a tremendous joy because they understood what they got in return. So joy is the treasure. He is the treasure, and joy is the outcome of, of, of um, capturing that treasure. Joy is the outcome once you understand the value of it. So I'm cognizant of, of the fact that I think that we probably have people listening to us today who, who have never experienced joy. So yeah. what is the difference? How do you know what the difference between joy and happiness is? Yeah, that's, that's a good question, because uh, joy, I've experienced joy when I've been sad. Mm-hmm. I've experienced joy when I'm in grief. I've experienced joy when I'm happy. I've experienced joy along the whole gamut of emotions. It's not really tied so much to an emotion. Joy is the deep sense that you are a sheep to your very core with all the problems that sheep present, but that you are loved. And you understand to that deep level that you have a shepherd who loves you, not in a crowd 99 sheep way, but in a one sheep lost and wandering with a pursuer way, that he's left the 99 to pursue me because he sees great value in me. So it's that sense deep inside that you are loved at a fundamental level that produces joy. And that sense of being loved can happen whether you're in grief or happiness. Mm -hmm. It's not tied to those emotions. That joy then wells up in you at a fundamental level. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's my best shot. I think I'm going to have to write an article about this. (laughs) Good. People, you can expect that there will be an article about what is the difference between joy and happiness. Excellent. So um, a few things that we can leave as as takeaways here. Why don't you take that first one? I think this week we want to, if if you, the first thing I would say is that if you've never experienced joy, I would just maybe spend some time talking to Jesus. The last episode we did is all about how do I hear the voice of God if you don't know what that means. Go back to that episode, listen to it. Um, But maybe spend some time with Jesus and just say, God, where do you want to show me joy in my life? You know, how can I experience that? Um, and then also, let, let's just go through and let's just ask him, what risks are you wanting me to take right now? Where is there a place in my life that I could maybe take a little and, bit of a and, risk? And even relative to what you're saying about the last podcast, my, my, Jesus, help help me to be more open and responsive to the nudge when I feel it. Mm-hmm. And that for me to take the step of that risk, risk, risk is, is hard, um, for the first step and easy after the first step. So the hard part of risk is only the first step. All of the 20 or 30 or 400 that follow after it are not as hard once you take the first step. So where's the first step of risk I can take with him today? And maybe to ask Jesus to prompt you in in small acts that you can do wholeheartedly. Whatever your job is, whatever occupies your day, figure out what is the small thing I do that others and maybe even myself diminish and say it is not important, and target that thing and say, what would it look like for me to do that with a whole heart as an act of worship to Jesus? That's another thing you could do. Another thing you could do is just ask Jesus, who is the one in my life right now that you want me to go after? And maybe that's someone at work. Um, Maybe that is a friendship that you really need to spend some time with. Maybe it's your spouse or one of your kids 
but um, just pray t- about that and just, God, where, what is the one that you really want me to go after right now? And in the vein of honesty, when Jesus said, um, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, he was just stating the truth. So an honest question is to ask ourselves, where is my treasure? Not as a should, it's just a diagnostic. Where is my treasure? Because where, however I answer that is where my heart will be. And Jesus wants, um, wants to be that treasure in our, our life. So if you answer that question honestly, then um, begin to pay ridiculous attention to Jesus. You will begin to discover more and more the great treasure of his beauty. You'll be inexorably drawn to him. So ask yourself, where's my treasure? If, it's, if you don't get the answer that you hope for, then begin to, to move back toward Jesus again. Pay attention to him again. Be drawn in by his beauty. So I think we wanted to mention uh, the seven days of centering on Jesus thing. You want to say something about that? Yeah, yeah we, you know, I can't believe we haven't mentioned this, but we have this fantastic devotional. It's a free devotional. You can download it or you can, um, uh, you can sign up to get the email prompts and it's just seven days and they're just very quick, easy prompts to help invite Jesus into your everyday life. Um, it was written by our friend Steph after she read Jesus centered life. Um, and so you can go, we'll put it on this, on this, um, podcast page, um, on jesuscenteredlife.com visit the podcast section. This is episode seven and you can find it there. We've had over 20,000 people who have gone through this and people just say it's life-changing. We get emails from people who say, I've been a Christian for 25 years and I've never experienced Jesus Mm -hmm. like this. And just so seven short days, um, take the challenge. Yes. So uh, this is again, episode seven of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And and this is a podcast from Lifetree. You can find out more by going to jesuscenteredlife.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and we'll talk next time. Bye.